Good morning. Happy Sunday, Highland Community Church. We're glad that you have joined us online. We're glad that you are worshiping our worthy God. If you have your Bibles, we're continuing in Philippians. We're in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to corporately worship you, to sing praises to you, which we've done, and now to hear from your inspired, inerrant word. We ask, Father, that you would take your word and apply it to our lives, that you would encourage us and challenge us, that we would be more and more like your son, Jesus. We ask, Father, that you would continue to be with our country, continue to allow the social unrest and the real problems in our country to be addressed, not to be swept under the rug. We ask, Father, that we would value every person made in the Imago Dei, in the image, your image, that we would not be thinking in terms of colors of skin or tones of skin, but be thinking in terms of valuing individuals that you crafted, created, shaped, wove together in our mother's womb. And Father, as we now turn to what you led Paul to write 2,000 years ago, apply it to our lives, shape us with it, shape us through it by the empowerment of your spirit as we mine your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A number of years ago when I was pastoring in Pennsylvania, the administrative assistant came to me and told me that I had someone coming to visit me this Wednesday night. And on this Wednesday night, a gal would come. She wants some counseling. She had an hour appointment. That was not abnormal. In fact, in 30 years of ministry, probably a week does not go by with several counseling appointments. So that was not abnormal. That was not unusual. But she said, you know, you're fairly new to the community and you don't always know these people. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Now, the administrative assistant didn't slander anyone. She just gave me some information. And basically she said, the gal coming to see you is a madam. Hmm. Well, that was a bit unusual. And I was a bit nervous, and she was a bit nervous. She told me, this madam, after we met for an hour, hour and a half, she said, uh, I had never met someone like you. I, I've never been with one of your kind, referring to me being a pastor. She said, I really didn't know what to expect from your kind. I didn't know if you would mock me and shame me, humiliate me, yell at me, figuratively beat me over the head with your Bible. I didn't know what your kind would be like. So I was nervous. Well, I didn't tell her, but I also was a bit nervous. 
I wasn't nervous to be with someone who had probably committed some blush-worthy sins. That happens all the time. That didn't make me nervous. I was nervous that it was a Wednesday night with lots of people in the building. And in my mind's eye, I feared that somebody who might be on the edge of temptation, a man might see her and that might push him towards a very poor choice. I also wondered if it was possible that a wife whose husband had been unfaithful to the organization that she represented might see her and that might reopen some, some tender and painful wounds. So I was a bit nervous, not necessarily about talking with her, but what it could mean to someone else. But alas, uh, both of our concerns were not reality. It didn't go that way. Now you probably are thinking to yourself, well, well, what happened? Inquiring minds want to know. Did she pray to receive Christ? Did you have a white rose next Sunday up on the altar where people could see and they could all clap and say, praise the Lord. Did she start coming to church? Was she a regular attender? Did she turn her life around? Well, those would have been great endings, but none of them were reality. She didn't receive Christ. We had a very cordial conversation. But she essentially said, as I shared the gospel, and the gospel always starts with the bad news of personal sin and goes to the good news of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection as a payment of our confession and the power of God's spirit repented of sin. But it starts with a bad news sin, and, and she assured me she wasn't a sinner. She said, sin is murder, and I've never murdered anyone then she pointed to herself and me and she said, we may make different choices, but we're not sinners. And therefore, we really don't need a Savior, which was interesting because she had come to see me because she was concerned about her soul. But as soon as I mentioned sin, she wanted no part of the gospel. She assured me that she really wasn't a sinner, maybe had made some poor choices, but didn't need forgiveness of that sin. I thought maybe I had misspoken the gospel, so I tried again. And I assured her that God would accept her where she was that day. That God accepts all of us where we are, but if we truly accept Christ, he won't leave us where we are. He intends to empower us by his spirit to turn from sin and towards righteousness. God accepts us where we are. He won't leave us where we are. Oh, she understood that. And in the words of Mark 10, where we have the rich young ruler, she thanked me for my time, but she walked away with a woeful continence. And I compare that situation with Saul Paul. Some people say, well, Saul is his pre-conversion name, he comes to Christ, and then he's Paul. That's not correct. Doesn't even square with all of Scripture. Saul actually is his Jewish or Hebrew name, and Paul is his Roman name. So when he becomes an apostle to the Gentiles, he takes on Paul. Well, Saul Paul 
is also confronted with the sinfulness of his life in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus where the risen Christ comes back and sees Paul and he sees God in all of his splendor and he sees himself in his need for a savior. And he's transformed. So we have two individuals with rap sheets, two individuals who have a past, who have a blush-worthy past, and one walks away without Christ with a woeful countenance, and the other receives Christ, receives grace, and believes in Jesus for salvation. This, then, I think, is the setting of today's text. I want to pick up, and I want to read chapter 3, Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now you and I remember the setting. Paul is going from place to place. Uh, he had planted the church at Philippi and then a period of years had gone by and he had now sent a letter and he wants to interact with those at Philippi to strengthen their faith. And he had told them the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone, Jesus paying the penalty of our confession, and the power of God's spirit, repentant of sin, believing in Christ by faith. But after Paul left, we know that a group of agitators, we would call them Judaizers, that's modern nomenclature, followed Paul. And these Judaizers taught, well, grace, yeah, that, that's not bad. Believing in Jesus, okay. That's like the first couple rungs on the stairway to heaven. But what you really need is to have a kosher life, a kosher kitchen. You need to follow the 613 Levitical laws. You need to follow them perfectly, and then you will get to heaven. And of course, we shake our head because that's not even possible today, is it? It wasn't even possible in the time of Paul. We have three sets of those Levitical laws, those 613 laws. We have the civil law. That's the law of a government. But it's written for a theocracy, a God rule. <laughs> well, there was no theocracy in the time of Paul. They were ruled by Rome. There's no theocracy today. We're led by Pennsylvania Avenue. So all of the civil laws can't be fulfilled. Jesus, by the way, fulfilled them, Matthew 5, 17, because he was a theocracy of himself as he walked here on earth. Then there's the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws are the temple laws. They're the sacrificial laws, what to put on the altar for what thing. And and although they could have been fulfilled in the time of Paul, they can't be fulfilled today. We don't have a temple. We haven't had a temple since AD 70. And then there's the moral laws, which Jesus also fulfilled for us. But they've been repeated, many of them, most of them in the New Testament. So these are the things we ought to do and ought not to do in the moral realm. And those are still in effect as an act of worship. 
So these Judaizers coming along and saying, Grace, yeah, that'll get you up about two rungs, but you need to fulfill all of these 613 laws, even though some of them weren't even possible in their day. The civil laws, there was no theocracy. And Paul says, man, I don't think you got it right. You can't earn your salvation. If anyone could, I'm the guy. And back in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, he opens up his trophy case, the things that he has done. He says, you know, I didn't even need to read a translation. You guys read in English. In his day, most of the Jews read in Greek. They read the Septuagint from 132 B.C. But Paul, he could read the original Hebrew text. He was a Pharisee. He was the son of a Pharisee. He was trained by Gamaliel, the most famous Pharisee of his day. Under the law, he was blameless, not sinless, but he knew the sacrifices to make when he made mistakes with the law. Paul says, hey, look at my trophy case. If anyone could have earned their salvation, it was me, and I wasn't able to do it, and neither will you. In fact, Paul says, it's only by grace, but in response to grace, verse 12, then I press on. Having received Christ by grace, then I press on to make that salvation my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. This is similar to what Paul has already written when he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. You and I will fail every time. We can't work for our salvation. In fact, he called it in verse 8, scubalon. It, it's, it, it's dung. It's like saying to God, I'll tell you what, you let me into heaven and I'll give you my trophies. And God looks at it and says, well, that really isn't any better than a shovel of dung. Don't be offended. I didn't say it. Paul did. Don't even beat up Paul because Paul's only writing what God said. So Paul says, if anyone could have done it, it was me. But I can't. I didn't work for my salvation. But having received my salvation by faith, I begin to work out my salvation as an act of worship. In fact, in this text, he says, I press on. I, I push forward. It's an interesting word, diocane, press on. It actually comes uh, from the hunting world. It's a hunting metaphor. Picture a woman. She gets up long before the sun rises. Uh, she puts on her cameo. She's already checked out her her gun or her arrows and bows, and, and she knows her equipment is working well. And even before the, the sun rises, she's out there and she's looking for tracks and she's looking for broken twigs and, and she's looking under evergreens for spots where there is no so, snow, where perhaps the animals have bedded down. And she tracks, she stalks, she pursues, she's going after the game. Paul says that ought to be us spiritually having accepted Christ, having been granted eternal life through faith in Christ, Jesus doing it all for us, the right response is that we track, we stalk, we pursue Christ, we go after Christ. And all of us pursue lots of things, nothing wrong with that. I want you to think of what are high on your list of things you pursue. Maybe it's the arts, Maybe it's music, maybe it's academics or education, maybe it's a job, maybe it's recreation, maybe it's camping, maybe it's boating, 
Maybe it's in the sports realm. We all pursue things. I tend to pursue a white ball, but my white ball is always disobedient. It likes the woods. It likes the sand or the beach. It likes the water. Stupid ball. Nothing wrong with pursuing those things. But our number one pursuit, what we ought to stalk and pursue and track more than anything else, is our relationship with Christ. Learning about God corporately in worship. Learning about God individually in the Word. Spending time in prayer. Not forsaking corporate worship. We need to pursue Christ, stalk Christ, train after Christ. Because as we do so, we become more and more like Christ. The pursuit of perfection in our relationship with the Lord. Something that we won't finally achieve until we get home to glory. What caused Ernest Hemingway to revise the old man in the sea 80 times in a 16-year period? It's the pursuit of perfection. What caused Noah Webster to keep revising and editing his dictionary for 36 years until his death in 1843? It's the pursuit of perfection. What caused Leonardo da Vinci at the very end end of the 15th century in a four-year period to sketch a reputed, nobody knows the number, a reputed 2,000 sketches to make his masterpiece, The Last Supper, which is in a, a beautiful church, the Church of Santa Maria della Gracia, a, a beautiful work of art. What caused him to, to have 2,000 practice sketches? The pursuit of perfection. And Paul says that ought to be what it's like in our walk with the Lord. Not that we're ever going to reach perfection short of glory. That's not true. But we pursue. We stalk after. We track after Jesus Christ. We make our devo life, our prayer life, our corporate worship life, the priority below nothing. All other pursuits are secondary to the pursuit of Christ. And I suspect that's true for many of you. If so, well done. And even now, take the next step. Paul says, he's so astounded by grace that he says, I stalk after, I pursue, I chase after perfection. He says, brothers, don't consider that I have reached it all. I haven't made it my own, but one thing I do. I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. You see, Paul's looking at his life. He's, he's looking at our lives. And he's saying, you know, we could be sidetracked in many, many ways. We could be sidetracked by other pursuits. Don't do that. Stalk after Christ. Track after Christ. Pursue Christ. But on the other end of the spectrum, he says, you know, we could be sidelined by our past. We could be immobilized by our past. Our past could be so blush-worthy that we say, you know what? By God's grace, I'm saved. That's true for anyone who's saved. But I am such a mess that, man, I can never pursue any kind of service, any kind of leadership, nothing. I love that Paul writes, forget what lies behind. I strain forward 
to what lies ahead. Think about Paul. The guy's got a rap sheet, right? You think of Acts 7. In Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen, the first known Christian martyr. He's stoned to death. Now, we know under Roman law, a Jew can't have a Jew stoned to death without papers from Rome and papers from the Jews, the Sanhedrin, Rome being more important than the Sanhedrin. That means Paul had papers from both of them. Because when it said he presided over, that doesn't mean he's the coat checker holding people's coats and that's all he's good for. It means that Paul is there. He organized it. He instigated it. He caused it. He threw the first stone. Stephen's death, Stephen's blood, is on Paul's life. And that's one that we know of. There are probably others. I think of Acts chapter 1. Or excuse me, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 and verse 3. And it says this, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. I mean, it's, got, it's going bad. They're scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then we read about who leads it. It's Saul. It's Saul Paul. He's ravaging the churches. He's going from house to house. He's finding women and men and dragging them out and committing them to prison. That's Saul Paul. And then on his way to Syria, on the road to Damascus, Syria, to arrest more, to ravage more church. He's not satisfied just with destroying the church of Jerusalem. He's going all around. Jesus meets him. And he is transformed. And you remember then God goes to a man named Ananias. Now if God speaks directly to you, I'm thinking you're going to obey, right? If God says jump, you jump. If God says go, you go. If God speaks directly to you, you're going to do it. God spoke directly to Ananias. <laughs> and he said, hey, I want you to go and start discipling this guy, Saul, Paul. And do you remember what Ananias said? Lord! <laughs> Lord, I, I know you're like omniscient, you know all things, but... Can I tell you a little bit about the Saul Paul guy? I've heard many reports of all the evil that he has done to all your saints, your church at Jerusalem. And even now, he's got papers to arrest people, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. In other words, Ananias, who would always say God knows all things, is saying, wait, can I tell you a few things about Saul Paul? Because I don't think you've read the entire rap sheet. This guy is a bad guy. And so if ever a person comes to Christ and should be immobilized by his past, that should be Paul. But Paul believes what God had him write in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things become new. That's Saul Paul. Now that doesn't mean that the moment in which Paul came to Christ, he immediately became a leader of the church. That's not how it works. But it does mean that even that huge rap sheet, including murder, including persecuting and scattering the church, including arresting women and men, separating them from their families and throwing them into the flammer in prison, 
all of those things did not immobilize Paul when he came to Christ. Now, when he came to Christ, there's three years that we know he was discipled. Then there's 10 years that we know nothing about Paul. So there's 13 years. He doesn't just go from a persecutor of the church to like the leader along with Peter of the church. It doesn't work that way. But during those 13 years, he probably took on more and more leadership and more and more responsibility as he comes to know more and more about Jesus. And 13 years after his conversion along with, with Peter, he becomes the leader of the church. He becomes the leader of the Gentile church. He will take three missionary journeys. He will plant 60 churches. He will, guided by God's Spirit, be used by God to pen 13 passages, 13 books of Scripture. This man says, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word, forget, it doesn't mean that, oh, bygones be bygones. I've done it, well, whatever. Forget doesn't mean that. Forget means that he's confessed, he's agreed with God for his sin. He's repented in the power of God's spirit. He's turning from sin and towards righteousness. If necessary, he's paying restitution and paying the price of his confessed sins. And he's learning from them. Forget just means he's not immobilized by his past. It doesn't mean that he just says, <laughs> whatever. Whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. It doesn't mean that. We confess, we repent, we make restitution. We move in the direction of the Lord. I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies behind. It's an interesting word, that word strain. Think of the Olympic Games or the Corinthian Isthmus Games and several people are running and they're racing and they're side by side, and they get to the finish line, and, and they, they strain forward to get that head across the line first to win the prize. Every part of their body is, is exerting energy. Paul says that's what he does for Christ. He exerts his primary energy, his most important energy for the kingdom. That word strain is also used in the world of chariot racing. Now, when we think of chariots, we tend to think of what we see on TV, this flat bed with these sides and a front wall, and, and the guy's holding the reins, and he's got the side wall and the front wall, and, and that is not a Greek chariot. An ancient Greek chariot is, is a flat piece with two wheels, no side walls, no front walls. He's on that thing, and he's holding the reins with one horse or two horses or four horses, and i got to tell you, the actuaries at a life insurance company, they don't like to insure chariot riders. They're a bad insurer. Their life expectancy is really short. They have to strain all their body so as not to be pulled off that flat platform and run over by all the horses behind them. It's a dangerous scenario. Every part of their being is straining forward. And Paul says, I pursue, I stalk, I strain for Christ. I, I strain after Jesus Christ. I strain after the prize of the upward call of Christ. That prize, I think, is the extra eternal rewards that God gives for the faithful, having come to Christ, 
when we live worship-filled, God-honoring lives, we build up extra eternal rewards. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, Romans 14. And those are rewards we ought to strive after. Let's listen to what Paul wrote towards the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 78. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is stored up for me the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will give me on that day, the day of judgment, the day when all believers come before Christ. We're not determining if we go to heaven or hell. That was determined by believing in Christ or rejecting him. If you're before the judgment seat of Christ, he's evaluating your and my life as believers in Jesus for extra eternal rewards. That's the day which the righteous judge will reward me on that day, but not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearance. So Paul says, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. Paul says that we don't earn our salvation. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ. But having received Christ, then we pursue Christ. We stalk after Christ. We strain after Christ. We agree with Christ, we confess, we turn from our sin, we repent, we make restitution if necessary, but we're not immobilized by our past, even if it's shame-worthy or blushful. We're not immobilized by that past, but we press on to live for Christ, to pursue the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. So this is good news. Some have rap sheets. Some have blush-worthy paths. If you truly agree with God and you confess and you repent, won't you bask in the grace rather than continually wallowing in sin that you've confessed and you've confessed and you've confessed over and over again? Won't you bask? Won't I bask in the grace and having received wave after wave after wave of grace, won't we pursue Christ? Won't we serve Christ? Won't we engage in the ministries of Christ? That's what Paul did. That's what many of you I know do. Well done. Father God, help us to pursue you. To pursue truth. If we have some sin that we have not confessed, help us to agree with you. In the power of your Spirit, help us to repent, turn from it 180 degrees away. Help us not to wallow in past sin that has already been confessed, repented of, made restitution for, but bask in your grace and pursue the next step in our relationship with your son, Jesus. Empower us to do this. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.